this morning in Luke chapter 13 to open your Bible there to Luke chapter 13 and we will be in that text here in just a moment. In my time here, which is almost a year now, hard to believe, but I have come to learn that there are at least a few gardeners among us here in this congregation. Uh, whether it is a big garden or a small garden, whether it is a vegetable garden or perhaps a fruit garden or an herb garden, whether it's just a few flowers in a few pots or a flower bed full of flowers, several people in this church grow a garden of some kind. And I would like to ask the question, why? Why are some people gardeners? Why are people devoting time and money and effort to growing flowers or growing vegetables or to growing fruit or herbs or those kinds of things? Well, there might be a lot of answers that you who are gardeners could give to that particular question, but I think it would certainly all boil down to this, that you do what you do to receive a bountiful harvest. You are looking maybe for beautiful flowers to brighten uh, a uh, jury day. You may be looking for tasty fruits and vegetables to feed your family or as our family has been the recipient of some of those that you have grown to share those fruits and vegetables with others. Uh, you may be looking to grow herbs to flavor your food so that you don't have to eat something that's bland every day. However, what happens when your garden doesn't produce in the way that you were planning or hoping that it would? At the least, I think you would be sorely disappointed in that because you have invested a certain amount of time and energy and money, perhaps, into whatever you're growing. But at the worst, you may just decide this gardening thing is really not for me, as Anna and I have tried on a couple of occasions to grow a few things on our back deck as we lived in Kentucky and weren't too successful in that. And we just said, maybe this gardening thing isn't for us. Well, in Luke chapter 13, Jesus tells us a parable, a short story that is related to gardening. As the master gardener, he, I believe, is saying to the crowd that he was speaking to and to us that he has sown the good seed in the garden that is God's people. But when he came into that garden looking for fruit, unfortunately, he did not find what he was looking for. This morning, as we look at this parable that Jesus told about a barren fig tree. I want us to think about this very short story and to think about some lessons that we can learn for ourselves today. To kind of put this parable into its proper context, I want us to really back up even into chapter 12. We're not going to read back that far, but you can look there in your Bible if you want to. But I think it's worth noting where Jesus tells this particular parable where he is in his life and his earthly ministry, who the audience is that he is addressing to help us to learn all those things that might be helpful to us to get a better understanding of this parable of a barren fig tree. Jesus is in the closing portion of his earthly ministry. From what I can tell, this is about the last six months of his earthly ministry. We know that uh, he was about 30 years old when he began his earthly ministry, Luke tells us in his gospel. And he uh, had this earthly ministry from somewhere to three to three and a half years. And so at this point, he's been preaching. He has been teaching. He has been healing 
Uh, those who were sick, those who had diseases, he has been raising the dead. He has been showing signs and wonders and miracles as we looked at last week from the end of John's gospel. And he's been doing that for about two and a half to three years at this particular point. And as Jesus begins to wind down at least the public part of his earthly work, his mind is really on coming events. His mind is on his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. His mind is on the trial as he is going to stand before the Sanhedrin and face all of those false charges that would come his way. His mind is certainly upon the crucifixion as he is about to go to the cross and lay down his life, as Michael reminded us this morning, that he laid down his life of his own initiative. And he is thinking to the time when not only he will be crucified on the cross, but he will rise from the dead. And he will overcome death and he will have victory over his enemy, the devil. And he's also surely thinking about the time when he will not only rise from the dead, but he will ascend back to his father, that he and his father can be there together in heaven once again. As Luke had already earlier noted in this same gospel, if you go back and look, in chapter 9 and verse 51, that Luke says to us there from that time on in the rest of his account in this gospel, that Jesus had set his face to go to Jerusalem. And as Luke had later said here in this chapter that we're looking at this morning in Luke 13 and verse 22, that Jesus was proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. I think it's very safe for us to say, as I just said, that Jesus's mind is on those events which are to shortly take place within a matter of just a few months. So although his time to die, his time to rise from the dead, his time to return to his father was getting closer, there are great crowds of Jews, Luke tells us, back in chapter 12 and verse 1, that were gathering to hear Jesus speak. Everywhere he went, there was this multitude that was following him around till you get to the point in Luke chapter 12 and verse 1 where Luke says there that there were so many thousands of people that they were stepping over one another, that the crowds were so large. He doesn't give us a number, but they were just so large that they were shoulder to shoulder with one another. And so as Jesus speaks here in chapters 12 and 13 of the Gospel of Luke, he is saying some things to his disciples, as seems to be the case at least early on in Luke chapter 12, again, verse 1. Luke makes that observation to us. He is saying some things to the crowds. As you look there in Luke chapter 12 at verse 54, uh, Luke says to us that he was also saying to the crowds. And then in the words of our text here, he is addressing these words to some who were in this great crowd, this great multitude. To think about the conversation that ensues here and the parable. As we begin Luke chapter 13, let's just read the first few verses here since Todd began our reading a few moments ago at verse 6. Let's back up to the beginning of the chapter to really get a running start. Luke chapter 13 and verse 1, Luke says, Now on the same occasion, so the same occasion as what we just talked about there from chapter 12, the great multitude has gathered to listen to Christ. On the same occasion... There were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, 
you will all likewise perish. The people who were speaking to Jesus, I think there's no doubt, at least in my mind, that they were Jews. They were those who were God's chosen people. And they told Jesus, as we just read here in these early verses of the chapter, that about this incident of Pilate killing some of the Galileans, mixing their blood with the sacrifices that they were offering to God. Luke really doesn't give us any background or any more information about that particular event or incident other than what he states here. In the passage we just read, he doesn't say why these Jews told Jesus this information on this occasion. It may be the case, though, that perhaps they were wanting him to pronounce some judgment against Rome, pronounce some judgment against Pilate, even pronounce some judgment against these Galileans to tell this audience that these Galileans were worse sinners than the other Galileans. And that's why this particular thing fell on them. Well, as was usually the case, Jesus didn't respond perhaps in the way that this audience of Jews was thinking that he was. But he did use this particular information that they brought to his attention, but also this other unknown tragedy here in verse 14, verse 4 about the tower in Siloam that fell upon these Jews and 18 of them were killed. We don't really know anything about that. But Jesus used both of these stories, if you will, as an opportunity to teach his fellow Jews that what they needed to focus on was not what their fellow Jews in Galilee were doing or what their fellow Jews in Siloam were doing or had done, but they needed to focus upon themselves and their own life. They needed to look into their own life, into their own heart, and see if they needed to repent. Because if they did not, he says, they would likewise perish. How often we can be like these Jews and we're very good at looking around at every, everyone else around us and saying, this brother or this sister is doing this or that. They're involved in this sin or that sin. They're not living the way that they should, rather than first of all looking at ourselves and making sure that we are right with God. Because again, as we just stated there, if these Jews did not repent, if they did not make the decision that they were going to come and be disciples of Christ, if they were not going to devote their lives to bearing spiritual fruit for Him, they too would perish. And to me, that seems to be that conversation, seems to be the impetus for why Jesus spoke this parable on this occasion. Again, the parable, we'll read it here beginning at verse 6. A man had a fig tree which he had planted in his vineyard and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too until I dig around it and put, it, put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. Jesus, again, as we begin our lesson by stating that Jesus was the vineyard grower, if you will. He, he was the one as the master gardener who had planted God's people. He was the one who was coming to them looking for spiritual fruit. And when he came looking, he didn't find any. And so he wanted this parable to really sink into the hearts of this audience that had come to him saying, well, what about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices? What about those who were there in Siloam that suffered that terrible tragedy of the tower falling on them and they lost their earthly lives? What about them? And Jesus is saying, don't be so concerned about them. I want you to look at yourselves first. 
Though repentance certainly would take place on a personal level as it does even for us today, that each Jew individually would have to look at their own life and make the decision as to whether they were going to make a change in their life or not, I believe what Jesus says in this parable is surely addressed to all Israel. For he says here uh, that back at verse 3 and verse 5, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. If Israel as a nation did not repent, if Israel, if the Israelites as individuals did not repent and follow Jesus, they would all likewise perish perish. They would suffer just as those Jews had suffered on these two occasions that are brought to Jesus's attention. So to think about the parable, first of all, to think about the application that is here for Israel, for Jesus's immediate audience. As we've already mentioned here, God had planted Israel, if you will. It is Israel, I believe, that is a specific fig tree of this particular parable. And God had planted Israel, his people, to be a certain kind of people. He wanted them to be a faithful people. He wanted them to be a fruitful people. He wanted them to show to the world his glory and his majesty and how awesome of a God he was. But God had done all of that long before Jesus spoke these words that we are reading this morning, long before Jesus talked about a barren fig tree. More than that, God had given his people every advantage and every blessing to be his chosen people. Yet as a whole, Israel and Judah were anything but God's chosen people, weren't they, on many occasions? They proved themselves to be anything but faithful and fruitful people. Once you go back to the prophet Isaiah for just a moment in the passage I have here on the screen, in Isaiah chapter 5, and listen to the language a very similar language that Jesus is using in this parable of the barren fig tree that was used by Isaiah hundreds of years before Jesus came to earth. Isaiah chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine, and he built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than, I, than uh, that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. And I will also change the clouds to rain, no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. Isaiah here, God through Isaiah is making the point to his people, Israel of old, that God had planted them for a purpose. Just like those of you who are gardeners, you garden for a purpose. You're looking for some return on your investment, aren't you? You're looking for beautiful flowers. You're looking for tasty fruits and vegetables. You're looking for herbs 
to flavor and season your food. So God was looking for something. He was wanting a return on his investment. And as God was looking at his people even back then, he says, you, are, you, you, you have uh, not become the people that I planted you to be. You have not been faithful. You have not been fruitful. And as a result, you are going to be destroyed, especially there at verse 7. You might know this as if you have read through or studied through a lot of the prophets, major and minor, This just seemed to be kind of a constant refrain as to one reason why God's people had gone into captivity because they had not shown the character of God in their dealings with others. They had not shown righteousness and justice and mercy and love to their fellow man. God had done everything he needed to do on his part as the early part of this little parable in Isaiah chapter 5 says that he dug all around the vineyard. He put it in a fertile hill. He removed all of its stones so that these plants could grow up and be strong and produce a lot. He planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in it. He hewed out this wine vat. He was looking for good grapes, but he only found grapes that weren't worth eating. But now as we think about this background to the parable that Jesus is telling here in Luke chapter 13, as we come to Luke 13, obviously God has sent His Son, Jesus the Christ, to work among His people. He has sent Jesus to try to get them to repent, to try to get them to turn from their ways, wicked ways, and to return to Him and to do all of that by becoming followers of His Son, Jesus Christ. As the eternal word, as John tells us in his gospel, became flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus had been feeding Israel the words of eternal life in his earthly ministry. He had been hoping that they would finally produce spiritual fruit. And after he had spent, obviously, it's kind of ironically, I think, here the time frame that is given in this little parable of three years. (laughs) As we mentioned, where does this parable fall in the ministry of Jesus Christ, well, he's been preaching and teaching and performing miracles for about three years at this particular point. And in all of that, again, Jesus is trying to get God's people, Israel, to come back to him. He had not found spiritual fruit on them. And after three years, his work among them is almost over. And so far as you think about God's people as a whole, sure, sure, they were individual Jews There were individuals that made the decision in their own life that they were going to repent and follow God now. But as a whole, the nation had not repented. And time was quickly passing away. Let's think about some other things that Jesus says here in this same chapter that we're looking at this morning. Dropping down to verse 23 here in Luke chapter 13. Someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught us, taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me All you evildoers, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. And they will come from east and west and from north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first 
and some are first who will be last. If the Jewish audience that Jesus is addressing on this occasion really understood his words, they would have taken it as a slap in the face. That Jesus is saying to them here, they're just kind of content and, and they are reveling maybe even the, in the fact that they thought they knew Jesus because they had seen his miracles, because they had listened to his teaching, but they had not really imbibed Jesus himself. They had not let the teaching of Jesus change their life. They had not, for many of them, let it bring them to the point of repentance so that they would turn to God. And Jesus was saying to them here, if you look there at verse 27, even though they might have been saying, well, you were here in our presence and we know you. Jesus was saying to them, I don't know you because you're not acting like God's true children. Later on in verse 34, we remember these famous words of Christ as he looked out, no doubt, over the city of Jerusalem. And he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you would not have it. Though Jesus at this point in his earthly ministry for about three years now, he's almost done. But though he had tried time and time again to get them to repent, to change their life, to come back to God, he says about them as a whole, they had repeatedly refused. And if they still remained barren, if they had not made the decision that they were going to repent and follow Jesus and be those who would bear spiritual fruit throughout the rest of their life, after all of these signs that were about to take place that would prove beyond a shadow of doubt that Jesus truly was the Christ, after Christ had died upon the cross and been raised from the dead and ascended back to his Father to show that he was the Christ, the Son of God, if still after seeing all of those things that they refused to repent and follow Jesus and bear spiritual fruit in their life, he says at the end of this parable, verse 9, if it does not bear fruit then cut it down. Perhaps that is an allusion to the Lord returning in judgment in AD 70 upon his people in Jerusalem. Perhaps it is an allusion to the final judgment. I don't know exactly what Jesus has in mind there, but it seems very clear he's saying you're going to be punished. You are going to be judged for the choice that you have made. And the application, brothers and sisters, is really the same for us today. Because as the Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 16, we today, if we are Christians, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, we today are the Israel of God in a spiritual sense. And just like Israel of old, physical Israel, we are a blessed people. Think about all that God has done for us. Think about all the blessings and the advantages that God has given to us. We have the, the entire written word of God. We don't have just a little slice of the story. We don't have prophecies that are looking forward to Jesus coming like the Jews did. Jesus has already come. We can see the entire thing. We can see the entire plan of God laid out for us in Scripture. And God has given us the blessing of prayer. God has given us the blessing of one another to help us walk through this life, to help us have the courage that we need to repent when that is called for in our lives. God has blessed us richly just like he did his people of old. We are the Israel of God today. 
God has sent his son, Jesus the Christ, to this earth to turn us from our wicked ways. The apostle Peter made that observation at the end of his sermon there in Acts chapter 3, that he has sent his servant Jesus to turn us from our wicked ways. We need to look to Jesus. We need to imbibe of him. We need to get into his teachings so that we can repent of our sin and turn to God. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. The Apostle Paul reminds us in the book of Ephesians as he begins that great book talking to us about Christ in the church. That there's not a single spiritual blessing that we need that is not available to us, ready for us in Christ. He has connected us as branches to the true vine so that we are people who are bearing much fruit for Him. Jesus talked about that in John chapter 15. He said, I am the vine and you are the branches and you can do nothing except you, you are connected to me. This is why God has saved us. This is why God has chosen us in His Son Jesus Christ so that we would be fruitful people for Him. Yes, just like the Jews... Our great God has invested a lot in us. And just like the Jews in this parable that Jesus is telling here in Luke 13, God is coming to his vineyard, as it were, us. And he is looking for a return on his investment. He is looking for spiritual fruit within our lives. And though he is certainly a patient God, as this parable reminds us, that he didn't want to just, you know, cut down the vine at that particular point and be done with it, he says, let's let it alone for next year. Let's fertilize it. Let's give it even more time and opportunity. And I'm going to do everything that I can in providing fertilizer for that vine so that it grows to be a healthy, fruitful, productive vine. God certainly is a patient God. But the message of Scripture is that one day His patience will no longer be available to us. And just like for those Jews that were here listening to Jesus on this occasion speak this parable of a barren fig tree, if that time comes when the end of our life here on earth comes or the Lord returns in judgment, if we have not repented, if we have not made the decision that we're going to get rid of sin in our life and we're going to turn ourselves to Him, if we have just been lazy, unproductive, unfruitful servants, He is going to cut us off. And cast us into the eternal fire. The words of Jesus there in John chapter 15. As he speaks in these terms, gardening terms again about bearing fruit. Notice what he says there at verse 2 of John 15. That every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he the Father takes away. And then at verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me... He is thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. These Jews on this occasion again seemed to me to be very concerned about their fellow Jews and what had happened to them and where the end of their earthly life was but they don't seem to be too concerned about themselves. Let us be looking to our own lives to see if we are in need of this message that Jesus gives us here in the message of the barren fig tree. What about you this morning as you examine your own heart and your own life? Are you, do you find that you are in need? Do you find that you are a person who needs to repent of sin? It may not be a sin that anybody else here in this audience knows about, but you know about it and God knows about it. Don't wait too late. 
Repent of that this morning. Turn away from that. Do you need to return to God? Have you wandered off the path like these Israelites had done? Do you need to come back to Him and serve Him faithfully? Are are you, I'm asking this morning, a barren fig tree? Because one day the master gardener is going to come back and He's going to demand an accounting of the life that we have lived. And when He looks at our life, will He find any fruit on us or not? Because if he doesn't, we already know the consequences eternally. If you're not a child of God this morning, won't you become a child of his? God has done everything he can do short of taking away your free will to make salvation in Jesus Christ possible. He has provided every advantage for that to be true for you. Would you not take advantage of all that he has done for you? Come before this audience this morning confessing your faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and then being willing to repent, to make a change in your life, and to give yourself fully and completely to him. As a child of God, it may be like these Jews were. They might have been thinking, well, you know, we're physical descendants of Abraham. We're fine. But Jesus said to them, you need to repent. And that may be true of you even as a child of God this morning. Don't let that sin linger in your life. Get it out of your mind, out of your thinking, out of your living. And be a fruitful, productive citizen in his kingdom. As we're about to sing this song, bring Christ your broken life. If you look at your life and know that it is broken, he's the only one that can heal it. He's the only one that can fix it. Won't you let him come and heal you of the dreaded disease of sin? If you're subject to his his invitation as we stand and as we sing.